2007, November 30th. Today is Lecture 46, Are We Alone? Life in the Universe. This is the final lecture in the Autumn Quarter 2007 class. Well, today's the last lecture of the class. We've had 46 lectures uh, to give you the basic stat shot for this class. To give you some idea of the just how much material we have been through, this is my notebook, which contains paper copies. Well, there's also the tests and stuff. Paper copies of all the slides that I show in class, six per page, double-sided. An approximate count is there have been 1,012, uh, make it between 1,000 and 1,030, separate PowerPoint slides have been put up at various times in this class. That uh, when you consider that the average recording length of the podcast is approximately 42 minutes, that constitutes something like 36 hours of continuously me talking, or about a day and a half of nonstop jawing. We've covered everything from the beginnings of mankind's understand beginnings to understand the, the universe and the, the basic motions we can see in the sky. And now we're about to address one of, I think, one of the most interesting questions of the 21st century. But then again, it was also one of the most interesting questions of the late 20th century as well. And that is the question, we've now begun to find planets around other stars in addition to the planets around our own system. We think we know pretty well the main census of our own solar system. And we've begun to find that there are now literally hundreds of planets around hundreds of stars in nearby and very distant space. And searches are showing so many now that we're beginning to basically no longer get interested in, oh boy, we found another planet. Yippee, make a mark on the wall. We now are beginning to ask interesting questions. Trends and um, properties are beginning to show up. We're starting to see correlations among these. They're starting to inform what we know about planetary formation. <clears throat> We're starting to actually measure densities, measure compositions. We're starting to see evidences of atmosphere. In a couple of cases, there's preliminary tantalizing evidence of actually seeing weather on some of these gas giants. But it's a very sophisticated idea, and I wouldn't have time to discuss it at this point because it's still kind of controversial. But it's very early days. And the real holy grail in this field is to find a planet like Earth in a position around an Earth-like star that is also, a is also habitable and, in fact, harbors life. And so today's lecture, I'd like to end this course with something which actually brings together a lot of the themes we've been discussing over the last few weeks, namely the question, are we alone? Is there life in the universe? The key ideas today are pretty much as follows. What I first want to do is, if I want to go looking for life, it might be a good idea to first establish what are the basic requirements and conditions necessary for life. It informs you where to look. Okay? And what we're going to need is a source of energy. We're going to need a place where complex chemistry can occur. And we think that complex chemistry involves liquid water and carbon compounds. And there's reasons for that. And it requires a benign environment, which will turn out to be very fairly low ultraviolet radiation environment. We then want to establish what are the criteria for habitable planets. What is the so-called habitation zone or habitation range of parameters? This will lead us to the definition of the so-called habitable zone, that topic I didn't get to weeks ago on comparative planets. We're now going to establish that. This is the distance relative to the parent star. If you're too close to the star, you go into a greenhouse effect and liquid water can exist. It's all vapor. If you're too far from the parent star, it's too cold and you freeze. And so you have to be right in where it's just right for liquid water. But also there's a second aspect to this, and that is the size of the planet also matters. If you're too massive or too little mass, you may also be a very non-benign environment. It would be not a good place for habitation. 
Finally, we talked yesterday about searching for planets and some of the techniques that we've been using, but of course we'd like to know how can we find, what do we have to look for? And the answer is we want to look for Earth-like planets in their parent star's habitable zone. So how do we find these other Earths? And if we do find these Earths, how do we ask the question, do they possess life? And that actually comes down to a scientifically addressable question of something we call spectroscopic biomarkers, a measurement, a quantitative measurement we can make that says, here be life, yes or no. So today's topic is, is there life around other stars? Now, before I do that, I thought I'd do something a little different today. Let's do a quick opinion poll. Question number one in the opinion poll, oh, yeah, your favorite, the five-point Likert scale. The opinion number one I want your opinion on is, we will find Earth-like planets in their stars' habitable zones in the next 10 to 20 years. So based on what you know now, what is your opinion about whether we're going to find these within their habitable zone? And I'll lay down a 30-second time limit for that. There's no right or wrong answer on this one. So do you agree, strongly agree, neutral, disagree, or strongly disagree that we actually have the ability to find Earth-like planets in the next 10 to 20 years? I'll give you about 10 seconds to lay down your answer for that. And done. And the basic census is most people would agree, but only a minority strongly agree, and even a few people disagree. Very interesting. The second question that there is, in fact, life, either single-celled or more complex forms, on other planets around other stars. Again, 30 seconds. You agree, disagree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree, or some full order that is. So is there a life around other stars? Is it worth looking for? I'm always curious to know people's opinions going in on these questions because there's a broad range of opinion here. Three, two, one, commit, and interesting. So you're much more likely to believe that there's life around other planets, and interestingly, it's less so than actually think we're going to be able to find those planets, which leads us to the combo question. If there is life on other planets around other stars, Will we detect verifiable signs of that life within your lifetime? So I'll hedge your bets a bit, give you a little bit more time here. Actually, I don't want to make it in my lifetime because I'm not going to make any guess. I'm middle 40s. I don't want to guess. And 15 seconds here. All right, make your final answers here in five seconds. Four, three, two, one, and all over the map. Very interesting. Well, this lecture, I hope, will begin to probe and see if perhaps you change your mind by the end. Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by life. What are the basic requirements for life? Well, the first basic requirement for life is a, is a source of energy. There's two fold reasons why we think a source of energy is important. One of them is it has to be warm enough in your environment for liquid water to exist. 
Now, maybe we can relax that and say, well, maybe if we want to get crazy, maybe liquid methane is also a possibility. Now, that's like we find on the planet, on the moon Titan. So maybe we are being a little bit too provincial by thinking liquid water is necessary. Remember, liquid methane plays the same role on Titan that liquid water plays on the Earth. So maybe we can loosen this question or restriction a bit. The second thing we need energy for is energy is needed to fuel chemical reactions. You can't have chemical reactions go on, if you will, in an energy vacuum. You've got to have some source of energy for those reactions to occur in. All the reactions of life, what we call metabolism, require a source of energy of some kind. Plants need, for example, sunlight and so forth, or warmth for certain types of bacteria that would die if you freeze them. We also know that life is a matter of very complex chemistry. Okay, we'll ignore the metaphysical ideas of life. The basic chemistry of life is not simple chemistry. Biochemistry is fairly complex carbon chemistry. We know that carbon chemistry is going to require chemistry involving elements heavier than hydrogen and helium in abundance, and that you're going to need to use carbon as a fundamental building block. There are very few classes of molecules that have the right kind of energetic properties that allow them to be used as in the kinds of processes that are required for life. And so as a consequence, we think that carbon chemistry turns out to be one of the most important of these. Protection from harmful ultraviolet radiation is another requirement for life to exist. For example, ultraviolet light tends to hit organic molecules and cause them to break up. Organic molecules are supremely sensitive to ultraviolet radiation. Life as we understand life, meaning DNA, RNA types of things, can be very strongly damaged by ultraviolet light. Either you can get so much ultraviolet radiation that it causes so many mutations that you basically shut down or put brick walls in the way of evolution of anything more complex than a single-celled organism. Now, the ways in which you can protect from ultraviolet light is you can have an ozone layer in your atmosphere. But notice that the ozone layer in the atmosphere of our Earth only formed from photolytic conversion of oxygen molecules into ozone. So the ozone layer came after the emergence of life, which produced oxygen. <coughs> so there must have been other ways of protecting. One of them is the life could emerge underwater. Water is a very good shield for ultraviolet radiation, certainly below the surface layers. Or you can emerge underground. There are classes of bacteria that live underground in the Earth that die almost immediately on exposure to sunlight. So the Earth ground can be a very strong way of protecting life from ultraviolet radiation from the parent star. So certainly these are three main basic requirements we think we need. We need to be warm enough for liquid water. We need to have enough of the elements around for carbon and oxygen chemistry. And we need to have protection from ultraviolet radiation so that much more complex life can begin to emerge. Complex life is bigger and more fragile in many ways when it gets going. Well, certainly, if you simply looked around this room or looked around the buildings out here, you would think life was pretty fragile. But in fact, you know what? Life is really tough. Life is amazingly tough. Almost every single nook and cranny on this planet is packed with life everywhere we look, including places that people would have sworn on their mother's grave. You would never find life. We have found life in abundance. Two examples of how extreme it can get is dark life, for example. Dark life are bacteria that actually live many kilometers below the ground or deep inside of polar ice. They've never, ever seen the sun. Some of those bacteria have never seen the sun during their entire millions of years of evolution. And yet there they are in the heat and pressure of the earth or in frozen liquid water, frozen water. There actually are certain types of organisms that have been found surviving deep in polar ice. They're called cryobacteria. 
There's also hot life. These are examples of what are known as generically a class of objects called extremophiles. Things that love the extreme. That's not just simply punk kids on Mountain Dew. Even bacteria love the extreme. There are microbes called thermophiles. They can actually live in a place here. This is Great Prismatic Spring in uh, Yellowstone National Park. It's water just about at the boiling point. The temperature is, is just about the point where this water is boiling all the time. And yet, inside that water is thriving thermobacteria. That's what these little guys are here. These are the bacteria that are found here in Great Prismatic Springs. In the deep ocean, under tremendous pressure, next to volcanic vents called black smokers, they find large colonies of Pompeii worms. These things are living in water at a temperature near 35 degrees Celsius. This stuff is so hot all the time. I'm sorry, 80 degrees Celsius. It's just shy of boiling under extremely high pressure. They live symbiotically with thermophilic bacteria. So life is able to get a foothold wherever there's liquid water, complex carbon chemistry, and ultraviolet radiation. And even in places which would, would kill us in an instant, there's still even microbial life, and even things as advanced as tube worms, able to survive under conditions that people would have thought would be more like what you would find in a cooking pot, rather than in fact a regular place for life. Short answer, life is tough. So what does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that we might not have to go out looking around other stars for life. We might be able to do the search relatively nearby here at home. And in fact, that's exactly some of the efforts that are going on now. For example, Mars. Mars may have had liquid water and had a relatively warm atmosphere, and even heavy atmosphere in its past, maybe during the first billion years of its activity. But something happened to Mars. It's, it's, it's Evolution moved in a direction to make it inhospitable to life today. But that doesn't mean that below the surface of Mars, which is protected from ultraviolet radiation, we may not, in fact, find microbes living in the ice. We find microbes living in the ice of the Antarctic. Why not on Mars? So, in fact, a class of, of space missions is being planned for the next couple of decades to begin to actually bring robotic biochemical laboratory sets, much more sophisticated ones, to actually look for the signs of life. In fact, future missions people are talking about flying, scanning electron microscopes and things like that. <coughs> it's certainly a reason why, ultimately, we may send humans to Mars to do the search more up close and personal. Europa, one of the big moons of Jupiter. We saw a couple days ago that, in fact, Europa is a very, very young surface covered with ice. And there's some idea that, in fact, beneath that covering of ice, the tidal heating from Jupiter may be sufficient to melt it into a gigantic moon-wide ocean. If the conditions are right underneath and it's warm enough, we have liquid water, we have organics, we have a source of heat, in this case tidal heating instead of solar heating, and the ice forms a perfect protective cap against ultraviolet radiation. So these are the basic pr pr properties we need to have life. And so Europa is a place that people are now thinking about how do we look for life below the ice of Europa. Enceladus, the giant ice moon of, uh, the, uh, actually the medium-sized ice moon of Saturn. All those beautiful water vapor geysers coming off. Again, liquid water under a protective shade of ice. There are signs of organic molecules in the material coming out of the water geysers. And there is a source of heat in the case of, in this case, tidal heating and resonant squeeze and, and stretch heating from the gravitational interactions with the other moons, particularly the moon Mimas. So Enceladus, quite surprising in the last couple of years, has entered into places in our solar system we might look for life. Finally, people have even suggested that the planet, the moon Titan, may be a place to look for life. It has methane chemistry instead of carbon water chemistry, 
<coughs> and very complex organic compounds. <coughs> it's got an atmosphere, which is able to protect it from ultraviolet radiation. Okay, it's ridiculously cold, but it's got a young surface, which means it's geologically active. So maybe there is a form of life here, but maybe we've got to relax our ideas about water-based life and think about liquid methane-based life. No one knows how that could work, but it's not completely crazy according to the biochemists. So each of these four environments satisfy all or most of the basic requirements we think are necessary for life. So there are places where we can look. And people are thinking in every single case about how we could go to these worlds, either robotically or, in the case of Mars, in person, and actually carry out the search. We don't have answers yet, but we have tantalizing clues that these are the right places to look. Well, let's look more provincially at our idea of life. What we really like is, you know, bacteria are kind of boring. You, you know, can't actually carry on a conversation with a bacterium, at least not a, not a very enlightening conversation. So what we'd really like to do is ask the question of what if we wanted to find life that's more like what we are, very complex, high-order life, perhaps even someday intelligent life. So what we really want to do is make, admittedly make, take a somewhat provincial line on this and say, what if we wanted to find another Earth with Earth-like conditions? And maybe we weren't sufficiently interested in it that we wanted to actually find new life there. Maybe we were more selfish and we wanted to go live there ourselves because we're trashing this one. Who knows? Lots of reasons why. So let's look at this idea in more detail. <coughs> we need to understand what it is that makes the Earth habitable, but Venus and Mars are not, at least certainly for life like we, like you and me. Let's play the following little thought experiment. Let's take the Earth and move it closer to the Sun. As I move the Earth closer to the Sun, the amount of sunlight I receive per square meter begins to increase. As I receive more sunlight, that goes into more atmospheric heating. And as we saw when we talked about comparative atmospheres of, of the terrestrial planets, if you run the temperature up too much, you actually can trigger what's called a runaway greenhouse effect, in which water, which is normally liquid on the Earth, actually goes mostly into water vapor. Water vapor is a very strong greenhouse gas. It has very, very deep absorption lines in the, ultra, in, the, in the infrared, and it will begin to cause the atmosphere to superheat, and it goes into a thermal runaway process. This is exactly what happened to Venus. Well, it turns out if you do the calculation, depending upon how you think a runaway greenhouse effect is triggered, you would have to move the Earth from one astronomical unit to between 0.84 and 0.95 astronomical units. That's the point. It's not much closer than we are now, where thermal heating would actually cause a runaway greenhouse in the atmosphere, and the Earth would essentially become like Venus in that circumstance. Let's go the other way. What if we move the Earth further from the sun? As I go further from the sun, I'm further from the sunlight, I get colder. Eventually what happens is the temperature begins to decrease. When I get the Earth out between 1.4 and 1.5 astronomical units, the Earth's equilibrium temperature would drop to the point that water, liquid water, would begin to freeze solid at one atmospheric pressure. So in that circumstance, I would run into the problem that I'd begin to shut down liquid water chemistry because I'd begin to lock up all my liquid water and frozen. So I would basically freeze the Earth if I moved it between 1.4 and 1.5 AUs out. In other words, I would end up with something referred to generically as snowball Earth. All the water would freeze, the atmosphere would get cold, it would be a nasty place to live. <coughs> Notice that the inside limit of how close we can move the Earth is not too different from the current orbit of Venus, a little over 0.8 astronomical units. 
but that 1.4 to 1.5 spans the orbit of Mars, where Mars is today. In fact, if we use this to define what's called the habitable zone, we find a rather interesting fact. Okay? Here is the solar system. Here's Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The optimistic or conservative estimate of the size of the habitable zone puts it between 0.95 and 1.4 astronomical units, or this appropriately colored green band for the habitable zone here. If I want to be a bit more optimistic and say that it's actually harder to trigger a runaway greenhouse effect on the inside and on the outside say that the Earth's atmosphere is heavy enough that it would actually give you a greenhouse effect to keep you warmer longer further away, then I get the somewhat more optimistic estimate, which is shown as the dark green band. Notice that in this case, the Earth is just inside the, the conservative habitable zone. Well, that's kind of good because we've been living here for the last few billion. Stuff has been living here for at least the last billion years, so that better be good. And not But interestingly, Venus and Mercury are completely outside the habitable zone, but Mars actually skirts at its closest approach to the sun, the conservative habitable zone, but stays within the optimistic habitable zone. So Mars is actually inside of a reasonable estimate of the sun's habitable zone. Now, when the, as the sun begins to age, it will actually start to get brighter, and the habitable zone will actually begin to move out. So this is not a permanent state of affairs. Sometime in the distant future, we're going to find ourselves in the wrong side of the solar system, and the Earth, in fact, will trigger a runaway greenhouse effect. Certain estimates of the evolution of the sun place that time in the, next, in the future between one and two billion years from now. So about one and two billion years from now, the sun will become so bright, the habitable zone will move out, and we're going to be in trouble. We're going to have a runaway greenhouse effect, and we'll become like Venus. Now, what do I mean by habitable zone? Now I'm going to be much more precise. I mean the region around a parent star where I can have liquid water at a pressure of one Earth atmosphere today, one, you know, one kilogram per square meter of atmosphere. So it's not just simply temperature. It's not just simply solar radiation. It's whether liquid water can exist in an atmosphere kind of like our own. Not too high a pressure, like Venus. Not too low a pressure, like Mars. Well, it turns out that that's usually all that people pay attention to. Is, oh, it's the habitable zone that's interesting. Not entirely. There's another aspect of this that's important, too. It also matters how big the planet is. If you make the Earth too small, what will happen is, number one, is it might get too small to hang on to a warm atmosphere. Its gravity will get less. But if it's got to be warm, that means the molecules are still moving as fast, you could actually start to have your atmosphere leak off. So that you can get too small, you can't have an atmosphere, you don't have an atmosphere, you're not going to have liquid water. Water's only liquid under a certain atmospheric pressure. You go into a vacuum, water is either gas or, or solid ice. It never forms a liquid phase. The other thing about being small, as you'll remember, is small things cool off faster than bigger things. So if your planet is too small, its interior solidifies really soon. If your interior solidifies, you shut down your dynamo and you don't have a magnetic field anymore. Well, a magnetic field acts as an additional shield of a planet's atmosphere by protecting it from the solar wind. The solar wind hitting the atmosphere literally erodes the atmosphere away. We think this is, for example, what happened on Mars. Mars is in the habitable zone, but two things are going against it. It's too small. It's like only you know, 5 6% the mass of the Earth. So it couldn't hang on to its atmosphere. It was a little bit cold, but that didn't help because it was still too small. 
And second, when it solidified quickly, because it's a small planet, <coughs> it lost its magnetic field. When the magnetic field shut down, the solar wind can come in contact with the upper atmosphere and begin to literally ablate it away, just simply erode it off. And so it accelerates the loss of the atmosphere. What do we see today? Mars has a very, very thin atmosphere, cold and bone dry. But we can also push this in the other direction. Too much of anything is also a bit of a problem sometimes. If I make the Earth too big, its gravity can become so strong that not only can it hold on to a carbon dioxide nitrogen atmosphere, it could start holding on to a hydrogen and helium atmosphere. And remember that hydrogen and helium are extremely abundant in the early solar nebula. So if you make the Earth too big, it can actually begin to gather a super heavy atmosphere of hydrogen and helium. It can start growing towards being a gas giant. Now if you get a heavy atmosphere, you get a huge greenhouse effect and you get super high pressures. So you can either be too hot for liquid water or too high pressure. Another interesting property of water is if you put it under very high pressure, then you either are a gas or a liquid, you never form a, a gas or you never form a liquid phase at all. You never can be anything other than a vapor. Sorry. So there's this interesting little zone where if you're too low pressure, you're either gas or solid. If you're just about the right range of pressure, you can be gas, liquid, or solid. But if you're super high pressure, you can be gas or virtually nothing else unless the pressure is super high. So you're a problem. This could be a very, very inhospitable place. Furthermore, if you build a heavy hydrogen atmosphere and hydrogen becomes the dominant atom, you suddenly go from oxidizing chemistry to reducing chemistry. Right? Oxidizing chemistry is what rules here on Earth, but if you switch over to reducing chemistry like Jupiter, now you get hydrogen, sulfide, methane, ammonia, all kinds of nasty stuff. So if you have to be within a certain size range for this to work, and, and a very conservative estimate is that for a planet in the habitable zone to be able to have liquid water, it has to be bigger than about one-fifth the current mass of the Earth, Mars loses, or perhaps as much as 10 Earth masses. And many people think that 10 Earth masses is too big. So what we've got ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, is a classic Goldilocks problem. Here we are in the Earth, nice and snug in our habitable zone, and we're just the right size to have liquid water. Move us in a little bit, boom, we're too hot. Move us out a little bit, whoa, we're too cold, and we freeze. Not too cold, not too hot, just right. But everyone thinks that's the end of the Goldilocks problem. That means they haven't read their, their fairy tales. Goldilocks didn't just check the, the heat of the food, she also checked how hard the beds were, etc. Make the Earth too big, it builds a hydrogen atmosphere, and it will actually become a totally inhospitable environment for life. Make the Earth too small, and you've turned the Earth into Mars. It can't hold on to its atmosphere, it can't keep its magnetic field, and it freezes solid, just like Mars does. So we've got a classic two-dimensional Goldilocks problem. Not too hot or not too cold, meaning not too close or not too far from your parent star, but in your habitable zone. But if you are in the habitable zone, you must either be not too big so that you built a heavy atmosphere, or not so small that you don't have much atmosphere at all. Now this is interesting if you go and look in the, in the press. Every now and then, for example, a couple weeks ago, they announced a brand new planet around the star, 55 Cancri, the fifth planet. And immediately, these guys started saying, well, you know, this is in the habitable zone, so therefore there's probably liquid water. Every time I read that, it always seems to come from the same... These guys are astronomers, they should know. I just want to reach through the TV and grab the person and shake them and say, but your planet's too damn big, it's a gas giant, there's no liquid water there, you moron. You know, you should know better. <clears throat> 
So far, we have found no small planets inside their habitable zones. All the planets we found in the habitable zones turn out to be gas giants. Sure, liquid water could exist if you had an Earth there. Then they could sort of weasel out and say, well, maybe there's an Earth-sized moon. You know? And you say, yeah, then you're getting special pleading. It doesn't work. Here's a scientific way of looking at it. Remember this picture? I told you we've been looking at this picture. I couldn't resist one more time. Mass of a planet versus semi-major axis. The requirement that you be big enough to hold on to an atmosphere, now taking into account how far you are from the sun, which also factors in your surface temperature, excludes anything that falls in this gray band here. Oh, good. Well, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and Eris can, in fact, have atmospheres. Oh, look, Titan has an atmosphere. Triton and Pluto are just on the edge. Just as advertised, ladies and gentlemen, these have atmospheres, these do not. But there's a different aspect of it. You can't be too big or you build a heavy atmosphere. So things like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, anything in this upper band are also excluded from being possibly liquid water and life-bearing because they're too heavy. This yellow band below about 0.2 to 0.3 times the mass of the Earth, your interior solidifies and so you are, never have a magnetic field and you're too small to have good conditions for an atmosphere. So you can see now this excludes a huge band of places with all probably having, unless there's an exceptional physics going on like tidal heating, which I'll ignore, these guys should all be solidified and geologically inactive. Geologic activity seems to be an important requirement for the conditions of life. Finally, you need to be in a place where liquid water exists, and we just got through showing that that habitable zone, here appropriately drawn in green, is a very, very narrow strip of the solar system. So here's a map of our entire solar system. And if we wanted to say, where would you be able to be to live? It's a little tiny part of possible parameter space for planets. Not too close, not too far, not too big, not too small. So actually, life is tough, but life has an awful lot going against it. There's only a very small range of parameters for places for life to emerge. Now. This is obviously being very provincial because I've chosen life like we know it here on Earth. Well, there's a good reason for that. We know there is life here on Earth. It's the only place in the universe we know so far where there is life. So if we wanted to look for life like ours, this apparently is the restriction zone. Now, that isn't to say that Europa, which is here, or Titan, which is here, or even Mars, which is here, they're right on the margins in various ways. Maybe the heat here, here, this habitable zone is entirely defined by all your heat comes from the sun. What if you could find heat some other way? Like, for example, tides, in the case of Titan or Europa or Enceladus. That may be a way of breaking out of this rather little tight box of life zone here that we've got. So we have to keep a little bit of an open mind here. We could expect that there may be environments where even though I'm assuming that all the energy comes from the star, I may be able to substitute something for those other parameters to help me out and give me the conditions necessary for life. So it's interesting that even though we look for life on the Earth, Mars is marginally in this zone. There are three other places in the outer solar system where we might look for fairly primitive life, bacteria. That's still life. It's still be fascinating. So this then brings up a question of where are we going to look? Well, let's put the exceptions aside for the moment. 
Conditions for life as we know it to review require a stable source of energy, steady, long-lived source of energy. A good star that doesn't burn out too fast or be too cold is a good place, meaning sun-like stars or thereabouts. <clears throat> we know we need the elements for life, water, carbon, and complex organics. We need relatively benign environments, not too much ultraviolet, within a habitable zone and so forth for liquid water to exist. And the fourth one is the one people often forget. Life kind of needs somewhere to swim, stand, or fly. So you actually need probably a solid surface, a place to cause an ocean to pool, and a place for, well, life to eventually stand up or a plant to send down roots. Now maybe we can imagine floating life in gas giants, but let's, let's stay out of the science fiction zone for a while. So what's our best bet? Well, our best bet is we want to look for stars with rocky planets in their habitable zones. We don't want to look for gas giants in the habitable zone. That's no good. Well, no good for the sorts of things we're looking for. That's not to say there couldn't be something there, but just no good for what we're looking for. And you want to be rocky, and you want to be in the habitable zone. And you want to do that around stars that look kind of like our own. Don't live too fast, or don't produce enough light. So, let me give you a scale of how difficult this problem is. See this picture? This picture was taken by the Voyager 1 spacecraft shortly after it passed by Jupiter. It looked back into the inner solar system. The glare of the sun was so bright that it produced bands of glints across the camera. But you can see, sitting right in the middle of this little particular band of light here in the camera is one lonely little blue dot of light. This is the famous pale blue dot picture that, that got Carl Sagan all excited back with Voyager 1. This is the Earth from 4 billion kilometers away. There it is. That's the Earth, shining in reflected light from the sun. The stars are so much brighter than Earth-like planets. Direct detection of these things is going to be extremely difficult. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is what we're looking for. We're looking for pale blue dots within one astronomical unit or so of a parent star like the sun. And the challenge is absolutely daunting. So we're looking for Earth-like mass planets around sun-like stars within their habitable zones. Well, the basic lesson is we haven't found them yet. The radial velocity methods are insensitive to the Earth. So you have to be able to detect things at centimeters per second speeds. The transit surface searches currently are only sensitive to really big planets. You need to have super accurate photometry. Maybe the Kepler mission, which will be launched in the next year or so, has some hope of finding them. But it's right on the edge of its ability to do that. And it kind of has to get lucky. Microlensing searches, as I think, might find them, but not around nearby stars, which is great for doing a census of how many stars out there have Earth-like planets around them, maybe even Earth-like planets in their habitable zones, but they may be around stars thousands of light years away, and so we wouldn't be able to do any follow-up studies to learn anything more except that those planets existed. We could not do a follow-up study, for example, to search for signs of life. They'd be too far away and too faint. So, this is kind of the state of the art now, but where are we pushing that state of the art? <clears throat> well, one of them is this mission, Kepler. It's a free-floating observatory which will look at a single place in the sky and measure the brightness from every single star in there and look for that chance possibility that an Earth-like planet is exactly lined up with its ecliptic plane on its planetary system so that that Earth crosses its parent star. That's going to require to be able to look for dips in brightness at a factor of one millionth of the brightness of the star. It's a very, very difficult problem. Kepler's right on the edge of being able to do it, but that doesn't mean we're not going to try. <clears throat> More fanciful are ideas that are now in the works, but are not yet ready for launch. Probably the earliest launch, if everything works well, maybe 2020. 
And this will be missions called Darwin and TPF. TPF stands for Terrestrial Planet Finder. These are motions being missions being proposed by the European Space Agency and by NASA to search around nearby stars for evidence of planets using direct imaging. Technique like, techniques like coronography and interferometry, and then also to carry with them follow-up spectroscopy to look for biomarkers. The basic goal is to find an Earth-mass planet in those nearby stars' habitable zones. And if you do find Earth-mass planets there, you then do spectroscopic follow-up to look for the atmospheric reflection spectrum signatures of the presence of life. This is a very, very ambitious set of missions. To give you an idea of what a picture directly of these will look like, this is a simulation of an image taken with the TPF coronagraph imager. It's a mid-infrared picture. The coronagraph basically is an is a optical trick to make the light from the parent star go away so you can see the pale blue dot orbiting next to the immense searchlight of its star. And if this, in fact, works, what you would see is all this junk out here, this black spot is what you're looking for to blot out the light from the star. What you would see is something that doesn't look very exciting all by itself, but this is the notional pale blue dot around another star. If we ever find a direct picture of an Earth-like planet around another star, it's going to look something like this, we think. Maybe not as clean, but it certainly would just be a little blip of light next to a blotted out star. Now, if that's all we had, that wouldn't be as quite as interesting. So once we've found such a thing, we want to go to what to look for, part two. What we want to do is say, does that planet have an atmosphere? If it has an atmosphere, does it have the various molecular signatures that we consider to be spectroscopic biomarkers? The spectroscopic biomarkers are as follows. Molecular oxygen is a very strong biomarker. We know that molecular oxygen exists in our atmosphere only because of plant life. And therefore, if you find oxygen in an atmosphere, you found plant life, or something very like photosynthetic plant life. Now, it's a great, easily great marker in that it's very definitive. There are no processes we know of to produce oxygen other than life. But there are many chances for false positives. It lives in a very tough part of the spectrum to work. A better signature, surprisingly, is ozone, which ozone is a nasty poison down here on the surface, but the ozone layer is what allows us to live on the surface by blocking the sun's ultraviolet radiation. Ozone is a photolytic product of O2 and ultraviolet light from the sun. And it actually has an extremely definitive, distinctive infrared spectral absorption band. Now, those are the obvious ones. CO2 is important because it, in fact, would show whether the planet actually has an atmosphere or not of the kind we expect for a terrestrial planet. Water vapor is certainly a sign of life. We certainly know water vapor might be an indicator that liquid water, if there's liquid water, there will be water vapor in its atmosphere. But of course, there may be water vapor in an atmosphere which does not have liquid water. So it's not a perfectly reversible marker, but it's not foolproof. But if you combine it with these others, it's a pretty darn good bet. Finally, methane, CH4. Now, wait a minute, guys. Methane's what? It, I just got through saying it's a reducing element. Yes, it is a reducing chemistry. It's a chemistry in the absence of oxygen. But anaerobic bacteria, like methanobacteria, make tons of, of methane. Hang out in a sheep pen sometimes. You can smell all kinds of methane, or a locker room, right? It's in the guts of animals. Anaerobic bacteria produce methane naturally. So, what we're looking for is spectroscopic absorption lines of water, ozone, or molecular oxygen, which can be very strong, ozone, water vapor, 
and even vegetation. There's something called the red edge. Chlorophyll becomes very reflective in the near-infrared. It's how plants keep cool in full sunlight. So we might be able to see the red edge. This is the spectrum of the Earth in reflected sunlight. And we can see oxygen, water vapor, and even a little bit of a bump of the red edge. So it is possible to tell that the Earth has life by taking a spectrum of it from another planet. Here's a contrast for Venus too hot, Mars too cold, and Earth. All of them have CO2. All three got atmospheres. But only the Earth has water vapor and ozone. We don't see, we see a little bit of water vapor in Venus and a little bit of water vapor in Mars, but no ozone, no appreciable ozone. So it's a very strong biomarker, ozone. Methane. We go from the prebiotic Earth, the simulated spectrum with no methane, and you suddenly add 1% methane, and bang, you get a gigantic absorption feature. So maybe we could find young Earths by looking for methanobacteria signatures of methane in the atmosphere, reducing chemistry where none should be. So here are the basic tricks. <clears throat> Does it have an atmosphere? Is there oxygen in an atmosphere? Is there liquid water? And is there biological activity? Well, the future is the technology to exist, to find Earths around other stars now. The detection of the biomarkers is probably a generation away. I think if we were ever to find a planet like this, and we were able to find a planet with life, we would find ourselves in a situation where suddenly our civilization would be posed an irresistible question. If there's life, let's go and see it. Do you have any questions? It's been a wonderful quarter. I've enjoyed it for the last 10 weeks. Thank you all for coming every day, and I will see you all on the final next Thursday.